and it's back to normal programming today. So it's two hours of Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher, has been overseas for the first time in two years, so we'll see what he's been up to. Elections next weekend in Timor-Leste, that's for the President, and two weeks after that, they're for Zimbabwe. Peter Murphy will be looking at the candidates and where the countries are heading. More on the hypocrisy of focusing on the conflict in Ukraine and ignoring similar situations in other countries. And the increasing voices pointing to racism in the Western world. Amin Abbas is a co-founder of Olive Kids, an Australian charity helping kids in Gaza. Brian Tyrrell, lifelong human rights activist, has been in court again, could have been in jail, but he's not there this time. We'll be hearing from Brian. But first, back to normal with Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jan, listener, when... As pay us to use your roads, transfer your hard-earned fields, Westgate Tunnel goes lower. The only thing going lower is workers' wages and conditions, with labour hire companies, and isn't this hard to believe, ripping workers off big time. Well, obviously it must be the complicated ambiguity of the award with the company they're actually working for having no idea there is a problem. Poor Borrelis Profit, for instance, even had no idea that two labour hire firms it used were not even registered, even though the workers, who clearly were not employed by Borrelis Profit, wore Borrel uniforms and worked while other unionised workers were taking protected industrial action. If the word wasn't illegal, subject to fines in the millions, we might suggest they are scabs, but as law-abiding citizens, we wouldn't dare. But anyway, they're not, because the law says they're not. But all this must have come as a hell of a shock to poor Borrell is, which said it was unaware of it and would look into it. Oh, good on you, but, but isn't it irresponsible not to know the wages and conditions of your workers? Well, strictly speaking, they, they weren't our workers in your uniforms. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's a condition of them not working for us. But look, not knowing is not nearly as irresponsible as, as admitting we did know. The tunnel builders, including their highly reputable John Hole Profits Land, set up a concrete manufacturing plant in Manala for panels in the tunnel, a mob called Rocktown hired to do the job, and would you believe a labour hire mob hired 10 Chinese workers for $30 an hour, 60 hour a week with no entitlements, and poor John Hole Profit Land and Rocktown, for whom they were working, again had absolutely no idea the workers were being ripped off and in fact once the proverbial hit the fan assured us the problem was being addressed our oversight procedures or an unengagement may have had some deficiency they understated and yes yes it is possible there might have been some deficiency but there'll be no deficiencies in workers' lives when they if, they, if they elect a Socialist Party government, as Socialist Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Anthony All-Being-Uzi, addressed an annual Filthy Rich or the Filthy Rich Caring Business Class Talkathon sponsored by the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. 
telling the filthy rich they had nothing to fear from a socialist government which would mirror the, quote, reforms of the nuclear hawk world's greatest worst treasure of Paul, socialist governments. Music to the ears of an audience that constantly advises the Socialist Party to clone this great reformist government which brought us all the cornucopia of neoliberal economics and the famous trickle-down effect, those much-appreciated drops of yellow liquid compensating lazy avaricious workers for patriotic sacrifices like, like a little wage freeze and Anthony would also outspend the caring business class hayseed and cheap shit government on trained killing, on feeding the coppers of the merchants of death. So why wouldn't workers to whom Anthony devotes his every waking hour support a socialist government? Speaking of wake, in the wake of the public transport lockout in New South Wales, which highlighted Big Supremo Scuttlebem Mall Ashson, a.k.a. Scummo's propensity for fact-checking and accuracy, in a related matter, we commented on recently those reports from financial consulting BMOT KP on the customer's MG, one for the Treasury, which wants to transfer public transport to a for-profit commercial entity, getting it off the state budget, and a second report for the department, which wants it to remain as is. The first report telling Treasury its plan would save billions. The second telling the department as is would save billions. And this week, KP on the customer's Supremo Andrew Yates defended the quality, independence and integrity of the work. KP on the customer's rejects any suggestion there was a conflict of interest. Both reports were completed accurately within scope. Sure, there was a mere 29 or so billion difference depending which department they were copying money from, but apparently it was not a matter of telling the client what the client wants to hear. It was integrity. Don't let the right hand know what the right hand's doing. But accurate? Well, that's what Andrew assured us, and I'm sure he's an honourable man. Why, he was probably at the business talkathon, whipping up a few more clients to whom he can provide an accurate report based on integrity. Oh, and he also talked of quality and independence. Good point, given there was that mere 29 billion difference based on identical data. Now, we can be critical of a government coming from our totally biased position, our claims that they can be a bit loose with the truth, but that ad about rubbish, 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 with Scummo and the team boasting of their environmental credentials, in this case, we have to give them top marks for honesty about their environmental credentials. On their honesty, last week we cracked a very funny joke that the Minister for Sports Rorts, Bridget McConzie, was in charge of handing out support for flood victims and let's hope they live in a government or marginal seat. Pissed ourselves laughing, but as it turned out, it was no joke. She's learned nothing, or everything, depending how you look at it. Her much-admired hayseed and sheepshit party leader, Barnacle, attacked those who suggested declaring government seats as national emergencies and not socialist party seats was yet another example of pork-barrelling, pointing out the recommendations were made independently of the minister. Sure, like the independent sports grants recommendations, which Bridget totally ignored. The 
That seems a bit ambitious award of the week to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin Monday, special 12-page Shane Warne liftout, as well as page after page elsewhere, with the big headline, Arise, King Warney. And I thought, he's eulogised as a god of spin, but surely a rise, even from Lord Rupert, is pretty ambitious. Still, maybe, after all, a cricket aficionado with no talent, the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo back in those dark ages, described himself as Lazarus. Lazarus with a triple bypass, he droned. Although, since then, it's the workers and unions who have suffered the pain. Then again, the old Lord Rupert, himself a king of spin, may have decided he really is godlike, as two days after the Arise King Warney bit, a photo of Elvis and Elvis, direct from Graceland. <laughs> now that really would be something. One of the several million photos shows the Spin King playing poker and laughing and joking with Crook Casino Supremo Jamie Puker. And I thought, isn't it good that Jamie can laugh and joke as he would have been one of the crook directors decreed by the corporate regulator to be not crook, assured he would face no charges over the few little problems exposed by the sundry Her Most Gracious Majesty's commissions and inquiries into the crook casino. Honourable, innocent Jamie. By the way, that 12 pages over and above wasn't the end of it. Eight-page special lift out the next day, and then eight-page special lift out the very next day again, and then eight-page lift out the very, very next, next day again, again, and the next day yet again. Plus, of course, lots of other pages after pages. We all know he was a bloody great bowler, but coverage day after day far exceeding the climate taking its revenge and Alexander put in the train killers being vengeful, perhaps just a touch excessive. We would have thought just maybe anthropogenic unnatural disaster in a cocktail of World War Three might be just a little more important. Although given Lord Rupert knows there is no such thing as climate change, anthropogenic or otherwise, and therefore no such thing as unnatural disasters, better to serve up bread and circuses, let them eat cake and other mixed metaphors. Truly important egalitarian enjoyment like Fashion Week, week after week after week, and for goodness sake, let's not make the mistake of calling this past weekend Labor Day when we all know it's Moomba. Let's to get, get together and have fun, fun, fun. The last thing we need is evil unions and brainwashed evil workers spoiling our fun, fun, fun by upsetting poor, caring employers who, after all, rack their brains day after day, toss and turn night after night, seeking a solution to their biggest worry, slow wages growth. Obviously, just paying workers more money is no solution. Ah uh, yes, when you decide the time is right for a wage rise, how many times will that be that the time is right? Uh, top of the head, I'd say that would be the first. Industry profits group Supremo Innes will cost the workers spoke for them. Uh, so you've never considered the time is right, which exposes what we're up against, exposes what we all know, the out-of-control greed and avarice of evil unions and evil workers making such unrealistic demands, like, uh, like wanting to be paid. Exactly. One man's pay is another caring employer's profit. 
one man's pay, sure, but as women argued on International Women's Day, that one woman's pay is generally lower than one man's pay for equal work, I've got no idea what they're talking about. Why, I can recall back in the early 70s celebrating equal pay. Relentless campaigners like Zelda Deprano chaining herself to just about everything, winning the battle, so I don't follow. A Socialist Party right power broker and senator, and right in the Socialist Party is saying something, given they tell us Anthony Albingusi is left, failed to see out IWD week and tribute said it all. For instance, Scummo praised her. One Notion's Pauline Hoonson praised her. Former Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, said she was a true patriot, a true patriot who had so much more to give. So much more to give. And from the caring business class party far right, James Patterson, who served with her on the train killer committee, said she was a friend of freedom, as in the liberty, freedom and democracy the US of the UN of the US of the world brings to the free world, the freedom of capital. And Erica Betts on the bosses was all praise. Uh, there is no doubt she is now in the arms of the dear baby Jesus. So that's our tribute. Other than after this week, we recommend all 52-year-olds head off immediately for a cardiovascular test. Finally, on such dedicated socialists, see State Sports Minister Martin Pack Your Bags Euler is packing his bags from for, for our mother country to put our case for the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Wealth Games. An invaluable trip, given we're the only place that wants it and there's no other applicants and the Games Committee breathed a sigh of when we said OK, it makes for a pretty onerous junket or, sorry, hard-working business trip for Martin. After all, the only alternative to guaranteeing the Games was to stay at home and do nothing rather than go to England and do nothing. Good afternoon. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. Angry at paying the heavy price for COVID? How about healthy, safe conditions at work? More health care, less police powers, a safe world with free vaccines for everyone. Rally Saturday, the 19th of March. Fight for public health and workplace safety. State Library, 12 o'clock noon. This rally was initiated by Workers' Solidarity and rally organisers are 3CR supporters. As with most of us, overseas travel has been a thing of the past for the past two years, but with restrictions being lifted, many have taken the opportunity to go overseas, and one of those is journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Nick, how did you choose which country you go to first? Well, I work for a a magazine in Fiji called Islands Business Magazine. So um, after a long uh, absence due to COVID restrictions, it was an opportunity to catch up with my editor and colleagues. And as someone who's lived in Fiji in the past, it was great to get back. One of the guiding um, realities was that Fiji has now opened up uh, to international travellers. 
Many Pacific countries still have quite strong COVID restrictions. Indeed, at the end of last year, beginning of this year, some countries that have escaped community transmission of the coronavirus over the last two years are now facing cases. Vanuatu, uh, Kiribati and uh, a couple of other countries like Tonga that uh, really have been unscathed by community cases uh, in the last uh, period are now facing a new surge of cases with Omicron. Fiji, in contrast, has had a quite a bad surge of Delta last year, but um, since December has opened up to international tourism. It has a very high rate of vaccination, over 90%. Um, of adults, uh, 95% are, are, are vaccinated with uh, two doses. And indeed, uh, since the end of last year, the Fiji government has begun booster shots for uh, um, people. And so, you know, travelling in Fiji uh, is no longer a, a practical concern, given that tourism has opened up and uh, small but significant numbers of people from Australia and New Zealand are starting to travel to the Coral Coast, which is Fiji's main tourist area. Did the undersea volcano affect Fiji? In the, the bigger sense that, um, you know, some of the uh, uh, easternmost islands of um, Fiji uh, in the Lao group are very close to uh, Tonga, and so the spread of volcanic ash did reach um, um, through uh, uh, atmospheric and stratospheric winds to parts of Fiji. There's certainly uh, close uh, personal, cultural economic ties between Fiji and Tonga. And so uh, it's um, been a really significant blow to the many Tongans living in Fiji because of the uh, social, cultural, economic disruption caused by the, the volcanic eruption and tsunami that hit, uh, hit Tonga in January. But, uh, you know, Fiji's um, battling on, uh, trying to adapt to the reality of uh, uh, COVID recovery which many countries around the world are grappling with, how to address ongoing health concerns, worried about possible future surges of new variants of the coronavirus, but also really needing to get economic activity going again, particularly because of the damage to tourism in 2020 and 2021. Many of the smaller island states, I believe, had difficulties getting the vaccines. Obviously, Fiji didn't have that problem? There was a bit of competition between uh, key development partners and donors um, to provide uh, vaccines. Um, both China, um, Australia, the United States all provided some vaccines to Fiji. The politics of vaccine distribution across the Pacific Islands has been a, a major trend. I mean, one of the striking features of, of the last two years has been that uh, developed countries like Australia, the United States and others have moved on to booster shots, having vaccinated their uh, population with at least two doses, the vast majority of people, um, except vulnerable populations like Aboriginal people in Australia, for example. But, you know, there's a, a move towards third shots, even fourth shots are now being discussed in Australia. But across the developing world, there are many people, many, many people who still haven't been vaccinated, um, even with uh, their second shot. And this is a major problem. Um, there was a lot of bilateral competition between uh, um, vaccine suppliers to uh, uh, win geopolitical support from uh, Pacific Island countries, as is true in Asia, in Africa, and so on. Um, there's real gaps in the provision to some of the more isolated rural areas and outer island areas in some Pacific Island countries. 
So Papua New Guinea has a very, very low vaccination level. Less than 10% of people have been vaccinated. And uh, there's a real concern about the health impacts um, as new variants develop. One of the criticisms that's come too has been that there have been attempts to develop global mechanisms through the United Nations for uh, vaccine equity to ensure that everyone in the world can uh, face up to the health challenge of the coronavirus. Uh, one mechanism was the COVAX facility. COVAX was a global mechanism where people would provide, uh, uh, you know, wealthy countries would provide vaccinations, uh, vaccines or funding for vaccination uh, to COVAX, and that would be shared equitably um, across uh, countries in need. That's been a real failure in big picture. It's done wonderful work. Uh, quite a lot of vaccines have been distributed from COVAX, but as a proportion of global vaccination, it's not done very well. And indeed, Australia has tended to give away its vaccines uh, in the Pacific Islands region on a bilateral basis rather than through multilateral mechanisms, keeping control of the process. One of the uh, other battles been about attempts to waive uh, the intellectual property and patents for vaccines through the World Trade Organization, um, originally with um, South Africa and uh, India and other countries uh, promoting this, but now supported by many of our Pacific Island neighbours, uh, Fiji, Vanuatu, Tonga and others. There's been a call for a waiver of the um, patents over COVID vaccines by the transnational pharmaceutical companies that have been developing these drugs. Um, they made plenty of profit out of uh, uh, the first uh, period and there's a call for them to waive the intellectual property rights over their uh, development of these drugs um, given this is the ultimate global challenge that uh, people face at the moment apart from climate change. Um, and so Fiji has joined uh, Vanuatu, Tonga and other developing countries to call for this waiver at the WTO. So there's a lot of politics around vaccine distribution and access. Um, it's a real global equity question. And, uh, you know, Fiji's done very well relative to some other Pacific countries in getting its populated, population vaccinated, but it's been a long struggle. I have read in other places that there has been, with the focus on COVID, the other diseases have been ignored or pushed to the background. I'm thinking of diabetes, heart disease and cancer. Is that the problem? Is that the situation in Fiji? It's a, a challenge all across the Pacific that, um, as in Australia, this um, pandemic has placed enormous stress on uh, public health systems. Fiji has, has always had challenges. It's got a pretty good health system relative to some of the other poorer countries in the Pacific, but it's always had challenges with the loss of staff. You know, after the coups that Fiji's gone through, um, going back over many years, back in 1980s, a, under, under Rambuka in 1987, the 2000 George Spate coup, and then the 2006 coup under then military commander Bani Marama, you know, after that, a lot of professional staff have left Fiji, so the loss of doctors, uh, nurses, skilled medical personnel, uh, together with people in other professions, has been a, a real loss to the public health system in Fiji. And so, you know, as we've seen in Australia, the added burden of, um, of the, the coronavirus pandemic has uh, really stressed the health system. And, you know, that's been seen with um, 
you know, real problems in, as you say, in other areas um, with uh, what, what in the region are dubbed NCDs, non-communicable diseases, um, related to uh, diabetes, to obesity, to heart problems, and uh, and and beyond. So yeah, that's a, a significant problem. Fiji, however, is better placed than other countries, some um, uh, smaller island states, uh, which have uh, very small populations, but also very low uh, numbers of medical staff. And uh, places like Kiribati, which is now uh, facing a major surge, its first surge of uh, coronavirus cases, are uh, really under the pump. Did Fiji in the past send seasonal workers to Australia? They joined the seasonal worker program uh, in Australia later. Um, part of that was related to uh, Fiji's suspension from the Pacific Islands Forum between 2009 and 2014. Um, the Bainimarama regime at the time in 2009 abrogated Fiji's constitution and uh, it was only with the return to parliamentary elections in 2014 that um, the labour mobility schemes like the seasonal worker program and the new Pacific labour scheme were opened up to Fiji. So they certainly have people coming to Australia, um, uh, including last year during the pandemic, but they've not had the same numbers that you've seen from countries like uh, Tonga or Vanuatu that were in on the scheme from day one and have sent large cohorts over over you know the last couple of decades since the schemes opened up. Can you explain the Pacific Labor Scheme? Yeah, it's a it's a variation on the seasonal worker program. When the Rudd government began with a pilot for the seasonal worker program, it was restricted to certain countries and restricted to the horticulture industry. So basically, fruit picking. Um, you know, the Australian horticulture industry for a long time has been complaining about labour shortages, although they've relied on working holiday makers, backpackers, um, uh, people dubbed grey nomads, uh, and, and so on. The industries around Australia saw the success relatively of this in terms of remittance flows and creating a new labour market of temporary labour, and so other sectors um, in agriculture, particularly in aged care, um, in uh, the abattoirs, in meat processing and so on, were eager to get a similar sort of temporary labour scheme for the Pacific. And so um, the coalition in recent years has uh, uh, complemented the seasonal worker program, which is still focused on uh, fruit picking and horticulture, uh, people working in orchards and vineyards and so on, with this Pacific labour scheme. The second scheme is different to the first. The, the SWP, the Seasonal Worker Program, people come for maybe uh, three, six months, eight months for the harvest and then return home to their home country. So it's a, a circular scheme where people will come for a certain number of months each year but then go home and uh, can apply to come back for a second or third term in, in subsequent years. In contrast, the Pacific Labor Scheme is uh, a program where people will come for two or three years, um, you know, essentially as um, medium-term migrants, not permanent migrants to Australia, but uh, coming for a longer period. There's a lot of questions about the appropriateness of that scheme uh, in terms of worker exploitation and so on. But uh, for Pacific workers, particularly with the loss of uh, jobs during the pandemic, uh, these schemes have been very popular given the high wage rates they find in Australia. The other fly in the ointment to all this is that the National Party um, has been pushing for an uh, agricultural visa for people from Southeast Asia. You know, one of the, the, the crises faced by some industries in Australia 
was the loss of um, of workers uh, because of the pandemic. You know, you had many working holiday makers coming to Australia um, up until 2019, and the numbers of uh, backpackers and working holiday makers fell off a cliff literally overnight as Australia shut its borders. Similarly, uh, overseas students were eligible to work 20 hours a week. Um, many, in fact, worked much longer than that. And so um, you had uh, um, foreign students living in Australia providing a, a, you know, a significant labour force because there were literally hundreds of thousands of overseas students here working by 20 hours a week plus. That's uh, you know, quite a labour force. And so in key industries like hospitality, uh, in tourism, um, in sex work, uh, in um, other sectors of the economy, including agriculture and horticulture, uh, the loss of both working holiday makers and, uh, and seasonal um, students has uh, been a huge hit. And the National Party has been pushing to bring in workers from Asia. Um, there's real concern, of course, that that will undercut both wages, conditions and safety in the workplace, but also uh, really undercut the Pacific Islands. Um, you know, if you can get someone with an airfare from, from uh, uh, Malaysia, say, uh, why pay the expense of bringing someone in from Kiribati or Tuvalu, where the costs of travel are, are so much greater for the employer? With the workers from Fiji, is there much evidence of exploitation? Less so than uh, with some other countries. There's been a lot of disputes recently uh, about like um, uh, deductions from their salaries. Although people get paid at Australian rates, um, under these uh, seasonal work programs, uh, employers can uh, deduct uh, costs um, partly for, uh, say, transport within Australia, um, a proportion of the international airfare, um, accommodation costs and domestic transport costs and so on. And some unscrupulous employers have been uh, um, bumping up those deductions. Um, so while they, on paper they might pay the full wages that uh, any Australian worker would get, they've used the deductions eligible under the scheme to really cut the wages. And so there's been Senate inquiries and indeed public testimony about this. Fijians have been you know, reasonably well organised around this question and so um, it's been less of an issue than say for some workers from Vanuatu and others who have less knowledge about their, their work, their rights in the workplace. I'd imagine that the Pacific Forum is coming up this year. Yeah, look, Fiji is currently the chair of the Pacific Islands Forum. Last year the um, Fiji government under Prime Minister Bainimarama hosted a virtual meeting in August um, of uh, leaders they couldn't meet because of COVID travel restrictions at the time, so there was no face-to-face meeting. That meeting indeed was due to be, you know, the virtual meeting they held in, on August the 6th last year, just for one day, was due to be supplemented by a face-to-face meeting in January this year. But um, um, Rangi Bainimarama, as the, uh, uh, the chair of the forum, was sick. Uh, in fact, he came to Australia, to Melbourne, for medical treatment. And um, uh, when I was in, in Suva a couple of weeks ago, he returned uh, um, from medical treatment uh, and is back on his feet. Uh, he just uh, attended the opening of the new Blackrock military camp um, in Fiji uh, uh, that's been funded by Australia. So um, that created a level of uncertainty. Uh, there's a lack of transparency from the Fiji government about what the medical problem he faced was, all sorts of rumours about heart problems and COVID and other other things, um, and uh, you know, there's a lot of criticism from civil society in Fiji about the lack of transparency, 
about what was wrong with the Prime Minister while he was away for some weeks, but he's back on deck. So there's talk of holding a forum leaders meeting face-to-face in the middle of the year, probably in June, but that's still very much up in the air because, um, as we've talked about on the program before, there's been a long-running dispute within the forum about uh, uh, the proposed withdrawal by five Micronesian countries and uh, disputes over the the role of the Secretary-General, currently uh, Secretary-General Henry Puna, uh, the former Prime Minister of the Cook Islands. What about the Melanesian Spearhead Group? How does that fit in with Forum, or doesn't it? Well, there there are three sub-regional groups alongside the Pacific Islands Forum, which is the main regional political organisation. The Polynesian Leaders Group, as the name suggests, brings together the countries in the eastern Pacific from the Polynesian cultural region. Um, The Melanesian Spearhead Group has five members, the independent states of Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, uh, Vanuatu and Fiji, together with the independence movement of New Caledonia, the FLNKS, the Kanak Socialist National Liberation Front. So MSG is a bit unique in that it's got four independent sovereign nations and a liberation movement as, as its full members, not the government of New Caledonia, but the FLNKS. In the Northern Pacific, there's the Micronesian Presidents Summit. Um, five countries, uh, Kiribati, Nauru, Marshall Islands, Palau, and the Federated States of Micronesia. And that's a newer organisation. The MSG dates back to the 1980s. Uh, the Micronesian group has been really formalised over the last few years and uh, indeed has been you know, campaigning for greater uh, involvement. They've threatened to pull out of the forum because they've been critical that some of the larger states within the forum um, didn't support their candidate for the Secretary General's position last year and have been, uh, you know, not addressing some of their primary concerns um, over many years. The Melanesian group is the biggest. I mean, Papua New Guinea is a nation-state of 8 million people. It's the bigger land area, bigger population than New Zealand, um, although not as as wealthy as New Zealand, obviously. Um, You know, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands are are amongst the more popular states uh, in terms of population size in the Pacific, also some of the poorer states in the Pacific. And so um, the MSG is a really crucial player within the forum, um, which includes Australia, New Zealand and 16 island countries and territories. There's been a major move within the MSG. However, they've just appointed a new Director General. The previous Director General, Ameni Alvoli, a Fijian diplomat ambassador, uh, finished his position in April 2020. So, you know, nearly two years ago, um, Yalvoli finished up his term and they hadn't been able to replace uh, Yalvoli. They've just announced, the Melanesian Spare Group's just announced the, the appointment of a new Director General, a guy called Leonard Loma, who's a long-standing foreign affairs official from Papua New Guinea. A very interesting guy, uh, been around for a long time, been involved uh, both in PNG politics and uh, in regional politics for many years, uh, very experienced uh, in foreign affairs and well-known around the region. I think it's a really interesting choice given that um, uh, the MSG faces some quite complex decisions about self-determination struggles within the Pacific. You know, there have been tensions within the group, for example, around West Papua, with uh, Papua New Guinea and Fiji less supportive of uh, the bid by the United Liberation Movement of West Papua to become a full member of the MSG. 
as with the FLNKS. Um, you know, Vanuatu and the and the Kanak movement obviously much more supportive of the West Papua liberation struggle. Similarly, the situation with Bougainville is quite complex for Papua New Guinea as the largest member of the Melanesian Spearhead Group. A couple of years ago, Bougainville's referendum on self-determination saw a 97% vote in support of independence um, and the autonomous Bougainville government led by President Ishmael Toroama is currently in negotiations and has been for sort of 18 months with the PNG government about a transition timetable towards full sovereign independence. Now, that's a pretty messy process. PNG hasn't delivered on all the financial, political, administrative uh, steps that it should have taken towards that move towards uh, uh, independence. So increasingly, uh, the, the Bougainvillians are pushing for action um, and for the MSG to have to manage that at, at a regional and sub-regional level. Um, you know, having a senior public PNG uh, public affairs official, foreign affairs official in the role of director general will be interesting in terms of managing that quite complex transition as Bougainville moves towards self-determination and independence. Similarly, of course, as we've talked about on the program many times, the Kanak struggle for self-determination, the uh, uh, the outcome of last December's referendum is uh, still a major issue. Um, everyone waiting the uh, results of the French presidential and legislative elections before the negotiations go ahead on the future of uh, what happens in New Caledonia. So all of these uh, self-determination struggles are a big uh, question on the agenda of the MSG and indeed of the forum. And uh, uh, the forum has sent a ministerial mission to um, uh, New Caledonia to monitor the December referendum, which was largely boycotted by the independent supporters, and uh, the report of that ministerial mission will go to uh, the leaders when they meet in the middle of the year. Just focus on Bougainville for a moment and the decision by the, the clan leaders on Bougainville to agree to reopen the Panguna mine. Has there been any talk on that? It's a, a big issue and a complex one for Bougainville. You know, for a long time, uh, the Panguna mine, which is controlled by subsidiaries of Rio Tinto, the giant transnational mining corporation, has been a, a source of conflict because of the environmental damage, but also a crucial economic uh, resource for Papua New Guinea. And indeed, the closure of the mine um, after uh, a militant action by Francis Ona and the, the nascent Bougainville Revolutionary Army at the, in the, the late 80s, early 90s, um, was was at the heart of the war that racked the the islands, uh, you know, for many years during the 1990s. There's been a lot of concern from clans that own land uh, near to the mine that um, there hasn't been the environmental rehabilitation that was at the heart of um, much of the dispute, um, going back uh, nearly 30 years now. And so there's been a a lot of debate about whether the mine should reopen. There's been still lingering cultural, moral, um, emotional um, legacies from the, the war. We saw thousands of people killed and many die from um, you know, malaria, from maternal child health and so on. So it's been a, a, a decade-long process to discuss and create a, a national consensus about whether the mine should reopen. As you say, there's been moves um, from many landowners uh, and resource owners around Paguna to begin that process, but it's not going to happen quickly. 
this is a real question for uh, Bougainville. What sort of economy does it want if it is to be an independent state? It has uh, real potential. It's quite a large population and a relatively well-educated population um, by PNG standards and Pacific standards. Um, it's got big fisheries grounds, uh, and there's been a push from the Toraima government and indeed the predecessor the, uh, under, under John Momus uh, to get agriculture and niche agricultural programs uh, exports up and running. But uh, mining is you know, a really crucial part historically of the economy, and there's a lot of debate about whether mining should resume at Paguna and other sites given the environmental costs as well as the economic benefits that mining will bring. In the couple of minutes we've got left, Nick, you have a chance to talk to the grassroots people in Fiji in the time you were there? had a lot of discussions with uh, um, colleagues, friends in the non-government church networks. Uh, There are key groups like the Pacific Network on Globalisation that are campaigning around a whole range of issues, um, trying to halt seabed mining across the region, um, looking at the social and economic impacts of uh, trade agreements, like the new Samoa Agreement, which is a a renewed agreement between um, the European Union and Pacific countries that many are worried about, uh, the contents of that agreement. Um, The Pacific Conference of Churches has been uh, uh, very active on a whole range of social justice questions around the environment, around human rights, around self-determination. You know, Fiji is going to elections this year, just like Australia, just like Papua Guinea, France, uh, the US midterms later in the year. So uh, there's a lot of debate about the elections. And indeed, um, from many civil society people and uh, and others, criticism of the uh, Fiji First Government led by Bani Marama and uh, his deputy, Ayaz Sayed Kayum. The opposition, however, is quite divided in Fiji. There are three main opposition parties, one led by Sidavili Rambuka, the former coup leader from the 1980s, uh, another, the National Federation Party under Birman Prasad, and Sadelpa, the um, Social Democratic Liberal Party, you know, Fiji first having the advantage of being in government, uh, and now that Bani Marama's back and, uh, and, uh, seems to be recovered from his, uh, illness, uh, he's a, a major figure, and yet there's a lot of criticism of the, what many civil society people regard as authoritarian and, uh, a lack of transparency from Fiji first. You know, that's going to be a, a big issue to watch over coming months about the conduct as, uh, as the, uh, people gear up for the elections, you know, and I think uh, because there are key elections right across the region, Indonesia, Australia, Fiji, uh, Papua New Guinea, um, you know, the French elections have implications for New Caledonia, French Polynesia, I think this is a, the next six months are going to be a really important period and people will be watching how local domestic struggles play out in the context of a, a changing geopolitical arena with sharpening uh, um, concerns between uh, the United States and China and, of course, the um, the legacies of the, the Russian aggression against uh, Ukraine and the invasion of Ukraine. Okay, well, thanks so much again, Nick, and I'll talk to you next month. Thanks again, Jen. Look forward to it. And that was journalist and researcher Nick McClellan.
Therese Virtue here from Music Sans Frontières. Subscribe to 3CR for music programs dominated by Australian artists, supporting Australian music making and lifting your day with glorious sound. 3CR is a membership-based organisation. We depend on our members' support. That's why we make it so easy to subscribe. Call 9419 or go online to 3cr.org.au. It's now 20 years since Timor-Leste's restoration of independence and an important election next weekend, the 19th of March, with an estimated 200,000 newly registered young voters. Will this factor make a difference? I spoke with human rights and peace activist Peter Murphy and my first question was, what positions are up for election or is it just for the president? No, it's just the presidency. And who's the president at the moment? The president's name is uh, Luolo. That's his sort of uh, common name. And uh, Francisco Guterres is the sort of uh, family name. So uh, he's been there since 2017. He's from the Fretland Party. And is he re-standing? Yes, he's continuing. He's going to stand again. And how many others are standing as well? Fifteen more. (laughs) So uh, it's a, I think this is normal, uh, that there's a lot of people run, I'm not sure all of the motives, but there is a, you know, attempt by some to, to maintain a profile and then there's, there is some money paid to each candidate you know, for the amount of votes they get. So it, it can be simply you know, for money uh, as well. But um, I think there's really only three strong candidates in the race. Uh- any of those three a woman? No, no. I mean, there are women standing, but I don't think that they're really contenders. Are they all members of a party, or party isn't as important in Timor? Uh, it is important, but I think uh, it's still dominated by the dynamics from the liberation struggle, and association with the liberation struggle is is a key factor, and... Uh, even though that people from from that struggle are in different parties, I think the public don't quite perceive it, you know, crystal clear like that. And what are the major candidates? What are their policies? Again, it's it's hard to to say. You know, technically speaking, they're not forming the government. If they are elected, and they they can't really say, well, this is what's going to happen if I'm the president. It's more to do with. Uh, uh, role of the president, which is to uh, protect the constitution and to carry out certain functions in relation to convening the parliament and dealing with uh, like a review process, a sl- sort of review power for legislation and dealing with national emergencies and then also any any sort of uh, deadlocks that happen with uh, within the parliament or between the government and the parliament. And have there been those emergencies in the last presidential time? Yes. I mean, the last term has been full of them, <laughs> Jan. And uh, I think that, that the way that Luolo has uh, conducted it, you know, you can say from one point of view, 
tended to stabilise the situation. But on the other hand, it's it's uh, certainly motivating Shanana Gusmao, who's a key figure in the whole liberation history of Timor-Leste, to push back against Luolo. So I think that that's the main dynamic in, in this election. And what is Gusmao doing at the moment? Uh, I think he's like the power behind the throne, uh, in a sense. But he, he's in the, in this last term, uh, especially 2020, he's been marginalised. I think he's very frustrated um, and wants to sort of come back to centre stage. Not that he's a candidate. No, he's supporting uh, Jose Ramos Horta, who's also very well known for the presidency, and it seems he's also supporting a candidate who was just till recently the commander of the armed forces, Larry Anantimo. He's a retired general now. But see, uh, both Larry and uh, Luolo and Janana were all prominent leaders in the liberation struggle. And Jose Ramos Horta was the most prominent in, in the external leadership, you know, in the diplomatic front. Well, it doesn't sound as though there's going to be a generational change. Not this time. (laughs) Yeah, not this time. So, and I do, you know, it's just my opinion, but I think that as long as this particular tension among this generation uh, isn't resolved, uh, it's going to continue like this. But the terms of the president are five years. And so, you know, by five years' time, all of them will be well into their 70s. Perhaps this is the last time when this is a really dominating, and maybe there'll be a new generation coming forward. And what are the generational issues in Timor-Leste? I I think that poverty, um, the need for better education, the uh, need to diversify or strengthen the economy in which most people participate, these are the the big things. I, I also think that the health system is you know, very much uh, criticised for its inadequacies. So, you know, there's a sort of a a standards of living um, and, you know, development poverty issues, which are are the biggest challenge. So, you know, in this last 15 years especially, quite a lot of young Timorese have had to emigrate to get work. And it's a sort of um, sign of failure that 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 happens on the scale it, it has happened. But I would expect that the younger people want to be able to, you know, have have access to the whole world, of course, but that their home is is uh, strong, viable, and peaceful. It sounds to me as though there's a, a lot of problems. What have been the positives over that time? The positives are that the institutions of democracy that you know were set up in 2000 to 2002 in those last couple of years of the UN administration have survived and worked by and large, although, as I say, there's some stresses. So in this period uh, since 2017, we had a a government formed at, at the legislative elections of 2017, which couldn't get its first budget through because there was a change of attitude from Janana Guzmao there had to be another legislative election in 2018 and the government that was formed there also had some serious difficulties but the first thing it did was to spend an enormous amount of money in Timorese terms 
taking control of the Greater Sunrise Joint Venture and investing in this project called Tassimani, which is a big petrochemical development project for the south coast of Timor-Leste, uh, connected to the development of the Greater Sunrise uh, gas fields. The government that did that, due, I think, to some sort of uh, frustration again on the part of Shanana Gusmao, sort of wrecked itself. So this was quite a shock, I think, that the governing uh, alliance, it's called the Alliance of Majority Party, AMP, the biggest component of it was is CNRT, the the party of Shenanigans Mao, and when it came to the uh, uh, 2019 budget, it abstained from voting on the budget, and the budget was directed towards this uh, petrochemical future. The opposition party was Fretilin, and uh, they voted against it, and the budget went down. This. I think was intended by Shanana to trigger another legislative election, but the president had had a sort of a room to manoeuvre in this situation and instead of immediately dissolving the parliament and calling the election, he urged all the leaders to discuss carefully what is the best way forward. Another government was formed instead of an election, but that government, which also was dominated by Shanana's party again wrecked itself over the issue of the pandemic. The COVID-19 pandemic was hitting Timor and uh, there was a national emergency declared. There was restrictions at the border and restrictions, you know, in terms of physical distancing and mask wearing and so on. With Janano, it's a bit like Donald Trump really flaunting any of this sort of stuff. And uh, he, when when the first three months of the uh, national emergency came up for renewal. He urged his parties, his coalition, to vote it down, but they didn't. So again, his alliance collapsed, and and this time he he didn't have a comeback. So Luolo, as the president, again uh, urged discussions, and the formation of a new uh, majority in the parliament happened. This time with the participation of Fretland, and then a whole reconsideration of the petrochemical uh, development project took place. That whole idea was shelved. So it's a a very, very big thing uh, that this political chaos or volatility took place, that the uh, presidency and the parliament were able to negotiate it without any violence and without too massive a disruption to the people. And And especially a, a sort of um, abuse of the people's vote, you know, that like in a democracy, when the people vote, the politicians who are elected need to make it work um, instead of just telling the people, no, we're going to have another election and then another election <laughs> until, until you know, they give in and, and give, give the sort of government that some powerful people want. I think there's a lot of, going back to your original question there, there's a lot of strengths that have been um, demonstrated in the Timorese society and its political institutions and the character of its various centres of leadership, as well as this problem, you know, of um, really dogged uh, struggle over who's the most powerful person and this Greater Sunrise project. Um, and the, not so much that it be developed, but the way it was going to be developed was 
I think and I think they did the studies in Timor in this sort of second or third government of this term that the, the cost benefit didn't work didn't add up for the country. It was a matter of really trying to to shift away from that type of economic development path to one which was more sustainable in the long run. Yeah, I think that uh, Timorese people have demonstrated a lot of strengths, but there's these unresolved arguments or conflicts still. These conflicts between CNRT and Fredlin, how far back do they go? It goes back to somewhere in the 1980s, I think. So, you know, we have to go deeper, in, you know, deep into the history of the liberation struggle to find some of the elements of why this has happened. But you can imagine, I think, that uh, a very tiny country like Timor-Leste, occupied by Indonesia, especially after 1978, a, a real uh, small guerrilla force maintaining an armed resistance and the real political resistance uh, massively being based in the urban areas or the, the civilian population, which was really very much repressed you know, by the Indonesian forces. There'd be arguments in the, inside that struggle about what's the best way forward. You know, this is, I think, where some of the personality clashing and the different strategy ideas have their roots. Yes, it's a, it's a long story, and that's why I think that you know, the focus on these personalities from the Liberation War is is what connect, you know it connects back to that time and those arguments and some of those arguments were really should we continue the armed struggle should we um, surrender to the Indonesians variations in between yeah? and um, the independence thing um, you know it's, it's from outside all I can say is you know it was clear it's clear from the beginning that the people didn't want to be ruled by Indonesia they wanted to rule themselves. And you know, we, that's what is happening now, despite you know all the limitations on the people because of their limited resources. But that you know the, that basic uh, struggle was won in those terms, and yet there's still a sort of residual um, and, and very important argument about what really happened and who's who's really going to get the benefits from from this independence. And what are the relations with Indonesia now? And is this where the younger people go for a future as they see it? Not really. I think uh, because of the uh, Portuguese connection to Timor-Leste, Portugal provided anyone who wanted them passports in Europe and using the European passport and a lot of Timorese went to the uh, UK and Ireland and Portugal and other parts for, for work. Um, now that we've had Brexit, that's got a bit of an upheaval. But the, the, you know, you'd be surprised to know that there's you know a few thousand Timorese workers in Ireland. South Korea is another country which has recruited Timorese workers, and and you know Australia also has the the program for agricultural and hospitality sector workers, uh, seasonal workers from Timor Leste as well. So I think uh, there's quite a few Timorese students in Indonesia using, uh, you know, going to universities there, but I don't think that there's a big employment uh, issue going on there. Well, the vote is um, Saturday, as you said. If there's not 50%, it goes to the second vote in April? Yes, one month later. So April 19 um, would be the, the, the second round, and uh, there would only be two candidates. Yes, I, I think... Uh, 
given the history of all these elections in the past, uh, since 2012, the candidate supported by Shanana has always won in the end. In 2017, Shanana supported Luolo, so he won in the first round. But the pattern was that the Fretland candidate would get about 30% in the first round and only 40% in the second round. And the, whoever was backed by Janana would get uh, 60 to 70% in the second round, but not, you know, but they would get around 22 or 20% in the first round. That may be changed, you know, that pattern may change because of the events of this last uh, five years, but, you know, I, I think uh, you'd have to expect that there'd be a second round and that it may be close, but uh, uh, that whether it's Larry or Ramos Horta, who, who makes it to the second round, that they would they would eventually win. And, you know, the, the main report coming out of Timor-Leste is that um, CNRT is supporting both of them, and in particular with Ramos Horta, he's been uh, required to promise that if he wins the presidency, he would immediately dissolve the parliament and call early legislative elections. They're due next year, but they... You know, clearly Shanana wants them this year. That would be, you know, I think a difficult um, constitutional process. I don't think the president can simply dissolve the parliament um, under the constitution. There has to be a reason. But, um, you know, so if that sort of pathway was followed, I, I can predict there'd be some sort of controversy and difficulty um, in, in even doing that. But And that that would cause trouble you know in the country so you know i'm not looking i'm not looking forward to i don't think that's a good prospect but that is one of the sort of options clearly uh looming up in front of us well just finally before we move on to zimbabwe an estimated 200,000 newly registered young voters what difference do you believe they will make i don't have a feel for that there there is a particular party uh that more, you know, appeals to younger people. It's called Kunto. Its origins go back to sort of martial arts clubs in the uh, first 10 years of this century. Um, but they, uh, they are a player in, in the current parliament and in the government. But I think they can't stand, you know, to get a big vote uh, compared to Luolo Larry and uh, Ramos Horta. So... Um, I think that they, you know, those young people's votes will follow uh, the, the main uh, divisions, I, I suppose. But uh, I think in the, when the legislative elections do come along, that may maintain or even strengthen Kunto's vote. Finally, Peter, Zimbabwe, a country which featured on Tuesday home time a fair bit with the bloody reign of President Mugabe, until his end of his reign in 2017, and then he died in 2019, and that marked the definitive end of an era in the former British colony. But violence has never been far from the surface, and indeed above, and the first by-elections in a year take place on the 26th of March. Peter, why is there violence and death in the lead-up to this first by-election in a year, which I've read is to fill... 133 vacancies. I don't think I've seen any reports of uh, people being killed you know, in, in this uh, framework of these by-elections. 
but certainly there's been a lot of violence uh, in this last since the 2018 elections that were won by the ZANU PF under Emerson Manangagwa. So, uh, you know, I, I, as far as I can see from the pattern of these events, there was a determined destabilisation campaign, and I think it was um, um, orchestrated a bit from the United States, from outside the country, and I think it was a sort of a you know, during the Trump period, uh, there was a sort of a lapse of interest on Trump's part about uh, foreign policy and uh, in, in Africa in particular, the State Department for several years didn't have anyone really in charge. So the ambassadors, you know, were sort of more or less just marking time or doing doing their own thing. And, uh, you know, in a sort of more clandestine way, some old Cold, Cold War warrior sort of characters were, you know, making their plays. Manangagwa was perceived by the United States as uh, a sort of continuation of Mugabe. He was a pro-China person and they're pro-Russia person and therefore, you know, he should be destabilized. And um, I think that, you know, the society in Zimbabwe is very, very exhausted by all of the um, volatility, killing and threats and, and fear from Mugabe. You know, and was so relieved that Mugabe was gone, so relieved that um, Manangagwa's uh, way of ruling seemed to be gentler, and um, this outside sort of thing was very, you know, confusing for people, and uh, and I think exasperated a lot of people. And one one element of it was, um, you know, you would see these stories called machete wheeling gang, you know, kills ten people. And uh, these gangs were somehow or other able to, to operate without with impunity for a while. And they mainly raided small-scale gold miners and, and uh, diamond miners and so on to steal their gold and uh, drive them away. And again, this is an imp- that area of gold mining and diamond mining is an important economic you know component of a very poor economy in in Zimbabwe and the the disruption was was really scary you know it was terrorizing and it brought discredit on Manangagwa so another thing that was going on you would have perhaps seen the reports of the you know abductions and torture of people for political reasons um and again this this bore the marks of um external you know dark hand because um, uh, it became evident that some of these were staged or faked, and then information arose about training training programs in neighbouring countries, which rehearsed these sort of abductions. So uh, again, these were aimed at saying that the government was a a violent dictatorship and a terrorist government and. While, while I think uh, the, the culture of violence in politics in Zimbabwe and in a lot of Africa is is very real and needs to be overcome, this was an extra layer on top of it, and uh, it sort of polarised uh, civil society a lot between those who who just wanted to get rid of Manangagwa anyway and saw foreign foreign assistance in doing it as just welcome and perhaps even easy money. And those who were just horrified at the deep, the deeper um, threat to democratic process that was going on with these these sort of dynamics of violence, and uh, 
tried to denounce them and and call for a better a better pathway. So um, yeah, I think uh, then the pandemic overlaid all of this, Jan, and uh, these by elections uh, coming back to them are much delayed. But, you know, the vacancies which are about to be filled happened like two two years ago or more, and um, there's been another layer of discontent. Uh, and uh, agitation about the fact that they were delayed. But um, as you can see around the world and in Australia, the, the relaxation of controls about the, the pandemic is, is it's also happening in Zimbabwe. And so these elections will take place even though the pandemic's still pretty bad there. The, um, the by-elections uh, are notable, I think, for... Well, first of all, uh, ZANU-PF can stand in the elections, but they're all for seats that were held by opposition MPs who were dismissed from the parliament for allegedly uh, abandoning the party from, from which they were elected, you know, switching parties. That's that's uh, not legal in, in the constitution in Zimbabwe. So the opposition has been just tearing itself apart in these last couple of years um, about who is the real opposition, uh, and then bringing together bits of uh, the uh, former movement for democratic change, which had split. It's like uh, shuffling a deck of cards. You know, Different hands seem to get dealt every few months. And I think ZANU-PF has also capitalised on this and uh, uh, you know, destabilised the opposition more by favouring one proposal to um, remove people from the parliament, and ignoring another one and so on. So um, the putting forward of candidates for the by-elections has also caused a lot of internal conflicts in, in opposition parties. And <clears throat> in some cases, parties didn't get to nominate anyone because they were so conflicted, and in some, they've nominated two you know, to, to run. So pointless in a way. So um, I just personally, I can't predict the outcome of these, these uh, votes. But there's definitely an effort being made to find candidates who are going to be more uh, respectful of democratic processes and uh, try to find a sort of political program to, to bring the country out of its misery. And so, you know, you'd have to hope that that, that sort of candidate does get, get the votes. 133 vacancies, is that large in the scheme of things? There's, there's not 133 seats being elected. How there, many are there? I, I think there's eight. Well, I thought I read I, that. Because I think there's been, since since these by-elections were called, there's been more um, denunciations in the parliament against certain people. What? They're abandoning their party, so there may be more by-elections. Okay. But I, I, I just can't predict because... The, you know, these by-elections on March 26 will happen. There's going to be uh, full-scale national elections in 2023. So, you know, will the government move in the parliament, you know, for more by-elections, or will they wait, you know, until the next uh, full elections take place? So, because it's relatively close. So, I think May. It's going to be in May 2023. I think the government can do either because, uh, you know, they they are watching a absolute debacle among the opposition politicians, and um, if they cal- if they calculate that uh, 
uh, perhaps there'll be even more chaos if they call another round of by-elections, yes. But um, I, I, going back to your question, I can't remember now how many seats there are in the National Assembly, but I think it's it's only in the 200. So if, you know, if there's 130 vacancies, if there's that many, it'd be better to hold a full-scale election, don't you think? Yeah. Just finally, Peter, um, pandemic, how are the people surviving that? Uh, not very well. You know, in, in Zimbabwe, you have to pay money to have a test. So the, the level of actual data, you know, testing is very low. And so it's very unreliable. It's better to think of uh, the numbers that are published as sort of just indicators of a direction in the, in the pandemic. And again, the number of deaths is, is, is bad, but it's, it's much, it'll be much, much higher because people are dying, not, not in hospitals, not, not being diagnosed, but, uh, most likely many, many deaths have been uh, related to COVID. So, you know, I think that the country suffered enormously from the pandemic. It's got some donations of vaccines from China and it's got some donations of vaccines from COVID, the COVAX program uh, run by the World Health Organization and the Gates Foundation and the others. But uh, as far as I, I know, it's, it's you know, maybe 20% of the outside have had one dose. So you, you see the population is very vulnerable to new waves of variants and, and you know, we're having this global second lot of Omicron coming. So I just think it's very difficult. The people I, I worked with and consult with in Zimbabwe are extremely careful about um, mixing with people, um, keeping physical distance, trying to have vaccines and so on. Thank you once again, Peter. Okay, Jan. Um, I'm going to team on myself. I can talk about whatever happens when I get back. And I've been speaking with Peter Murphy and talk to him again in a couple of weeks' time, as he said, when he comes back from observing the elections in Timor-Leste. Live at the Bowl is on now. The open-air series returns from January to April with an exhilarating program of live performance. See some of the best homegrown and international acts on the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl stage. Share a picnic on the hill, take in a symphony at sunset or dance the night away to your favourite musicians. Explore the full program at artscentermelbourne.com.au. 3CR supporter. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6pm Tuesdays. Today we focus on two contributions to pearls and irritations. First by Amin Abbas 
a Diaspora Palestinian and founding board member of the Australian Foundation for Palestinian Children, and that's Olive Kids, and second by Israeli journalist and author Gideon Levy. He writes opinion pieces and weekly columns for the newspaper Haaretz that often focus on the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. And to talk about both these, I spoke with Amin at the weekend. Amin, you've titled your article, The Australian Hypocrisy, Russian Occupation of Ukraine is Correctly Deplored, but Israeli Occupation of Palestine is Just Fine. Let's begin with the federal government's response to the Russian attack on Ukraine. You have no problems with their response, but can you list these five areas that you want to focus on? The Australian government has been very active in quickly and swiftly responding to the attack on Ukraine, whether it is by the government being extremely vocal in supporting the Ukrainian government's uh, right to resist in all means possible, be it by also like endorsing the um, current direction at the UN to investigate you know, like the, the Russian attacks on the Ukraine and take like a stronger decisions at the UN against the Russian government's aggression, uh, be it uh, by supporting the uh, International Criminal Court investigations of uh, human rights violations by the Russian government uh, against Ukraine. The vocal coverage in the media uh, by the Australian government and many of the ministers uh, in support of the Ukrainian government. The fact that there's a lot of support and aid uh, offered to the Ukrainian government is also a, a, another example. So here you go. There's five, five strong examples where, how uh, the Australian government uh, was quickly and swiftly responding to support the uh, Ukrainian, Ukrainian people. Okay, well, let's superimpose on those five areas the federal government and the media's response to the ongoing and brutal occupation of the Palestine of the Palestinian territories. How does it differ? The total opposite. Um, so, uh, in spite of the fact that we're actually having quite a glaring similarity between an aggression of one uh, group or the other, in fact, uh, the fact that we, you have one of people uh, by a, a government that has total disregard of their, you know, rights. So if you look at what the government in Australia has been taking as a position, uh, starting with total disregard to the rights of Palestinians, you, you don't often see any political or diplomatic position that is in support of Palestinians at all. In fact, what typically happens is Australia would very quickly pivot to saying we uh, support the, Israel to defend itself, uh, as if like the Palestinians are always, like when in fact the Palestinians are the ones who are oppressed, uh, there's always actually uh, residing to the side of the oppressor instead of really supporting the people who are ultimately the rights are being violated. So that's one, the di- diplomacy. The second is uh, the position of the UN, where quite often Australia votes with Israel against any UN resolution uh, in support of Palestinian rights. Sometimes it's actually so simple, like uh, uh, even diluted UN resolutions in support of Palestinians uh, get voted against by the coalition government. Uh, that's the UN for you. Uh, the International Criminal Court last year, under um, request from the former Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Australian government 
was actually making uh, diplomatic efforts to block investigations of the International Criminal Court uh, against violations of Israeli government against the Palestinian people. In fact, these violations that Palestinians know very well, not just for 50 years, but in fact for 70-something years since you know Israel was created. And we are talking about uh, uh, Australia who is, uh, who is blocking investigation. So they don't want uh, the Israeli government to be even investigated when, as you, I'm sure you know, Jan, that the uh, Human Rights Watch and, and uh, uh, Amnesty International and, and so many Palestinian human rights organizations have been talking about this for, like, for, for years and years. Everybody knows that what we have in uh, Palestine today is an apartheid. Uh, one racial group oppressing the other. So this is from an ICC perspective. Obviously, in media, um, you talk about, you know, support that is very uh, vocal. Uh, look at the, uh, Dave Sharma or, or many of like, the senior, uh, um, you know, ministers in the uh, uh, coalition government here coming in full support of the uh, position of Australia to support Ukraine, uh, when in fact the very same people were totally against uh, the practices that, you know, the Palestinians were taking that are identical to the, the Ukrainian people. For example, like, you know, resisting, resorting to boycotts. Actually, a great case in point is the Sydney Festival boycott that took place in Australia very recently in Sydney, uh, where the very same people that are endorsing the full boycott of Russia were actually the very same ones that are saying boycotts are not really a, a good practices to really uh, deploy against cultural boycotts or sports boycotts, saying they're not really the right approach, they're uh, indiscriminate, they're not the right things to do, when in fact they're deploying the very same boycotts today, including cultural boycotts against the Russians with the, given the situation in Ukraine. Totally opposite position uh, that, that we're seeing in, in the media and totally opposite position that you see around like resorting to boycotts. So we're, we're really talking about an Australian government that really is... Uh, the only way I can describe this is total hypocrisy and total disregard to the rights of Palestinians. Can you think of any other instance as the Palestinian and the Israeli one where the media is so biased against one, apart from Russia? Uh, look, I mean, the, this is very often the case that the Australian government seems to take a stronger position when it really suits it. I um, mean, the situation in Xinjiang in China... Uh, is, a, is a, obviously a position that the Australian government decided to be vocal about, certainly more vocal uh, than, than usual, given the fact that from a political perspective, it, it is also like something that serves them well. Um, they, uh, obviously, the situation in Ukraine is, is a very evident one. I'm sure there would be like a lot of other examples if we look through them. It's certainly not when it comes to Palestine. Palestine is considered, you know, a, a no-go zone. For a lot of even like the MPs that seem to see this sort of like a Palestinian lens, however, like they're typically uh, unable to, to influence the, 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 the government, uh, including even like some of the MPs in, in the uh, or members of parliament of the coalition. Not only a, a no-go zone, but also punishing the Palestinian people for their choice of government. Uh, absolutely right. And actually, this is a, another good example to reflect on. You know, Hamas, regardless of we, we love it or loathe it, and by the way, a lot of Palestinians do not like Hamas for a lot of other reasons. And, and as a political wing that can, like as a political party, if the choice of the people is to elect Hamas in 2006, 
that was the Palestinians' choice. And we, you know the rest. In um, 2006, in the back of electing Hamas, the uh, Palestinians were boycotted and, and you know what happened with the siege in Gaza and the rest is history. You're talking about 15 years, maybe 15 years of siege in Gaza that's leaving it unlivable uh, according to the UN standards. So we're talking about a, a people that are not really even allowed to choose the government. They get penalized for what they choose. The more recent decision to also put Hamas or like consider Hamas as a, as a terrorist organization in, the, in its totality, not just as a military wing, has some serious implications on, on Palestinians, particularly even like aid organizations that will have to, to work with basically bureaucrats who could potentially be considered as part of like a, this uh, 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 government entity. So it, it is definitely going to be very challenging for Palestinians on the ground, but also Palestinians that are trying to help uh, even remotely. You conclude your article with the sentence that the time is now for the human rights of Palestinians Ukrainians and Ergos to be equally seen through the lens of our humanity, not of our colour, race or politics or interest in politics. There's more and more people saying that now, isn't there? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so many people have actually seen this hypocrisy. So many people are really observing. I mean, we're talking about May 2021 when the attack on, on, on Gaza and the cleansing of Sheikh Jarrah was going full swing. And, and in both cases, it was very, very evident that what Israel is doing against the Palestinians are crimes against humanity. There's, there's no questions about it, what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah, ethnic cleansing, or what was the reaction and the response in Gaza was uh, extreme. And then Ukraine happens, and you can see the total, you know, in, in comparison to what was happening to Palestine, uh, the massive difference between the reaction. It is definitely something that a lot of people are observing. Uh, a lot of, like, you know, uh, our friends, our, you know, colleagues, our neighbors are actually asking these questions, particularly when they know where you come from and who you are. Uh, so that's exactly the point, Jenna. I definitely believe that this is how the, the color of our skin or where we come from should not really degrade our humanity. In fact, you have probably heard recently the, the responses uh, that are, uh, a lot of us were, were, were hearing, and in, in even like someone in the media mistakenly using stories from Palestine, mistaking them for being in Ukraine. I mean, the Ahadi Tamimi, who uh, is known to have been as a, as a child, uh, uh, you know, resisting uh, Israeli occupiers with, with, with full bravery, uh, who happens to have like a fair skin and blue eyes, and, and they're mistaken here for the Ukrainian. And this is where you see a lot more attention in the media. And like, I think the video got, I don't know, like 20 million views or something compared to the original video when it was like the Palestinians did not get the same attention. Yep. I, I don't accept this. Our humanity should be our humanity. Humans are humans, children are children, and we should really treat everybody the same. Turn now to Gideon Levy. And as he's pointed out, it's Jewish people also pointing to what you've been talking about. Absolutely. This is nothing to do with religion. This is everything to do with our humanity. And the likes of Gideon and, and other uh, Jewish supporters uh, and activists are also starting to be a lot more vocal. Obviously, Gideon has been um, taking that position for many, many years, but a lot more uh, are actually seeing that glaring uh, difference between the responses and the reactions. 
between the Western governments in general. So, we're, you know, departing from just Australia, we're talking about the West, but also talking about how Israel's acting in one way in its own backyard by oppressing Palestinians at the same time being vocal about being against Russia and supporting Ukrainians. I mean, it, it really is a an interesting position to take when you're, in fact, oppressing another people in, in, in very much uh, the same way. And, and the similarities, as per the article uh, that Gideon actually wrote, is, is extremely clear and, and, and crisp. Can you explain what he actually was writing? Uh, yep. So basically he was explaining that the situation in, in Israel is not really that different from from the situation in Ukraine. So you cannot really you know, support Ukraine. And, and be against Russians when Israel and Russia actually have a lot of similarity in terms of occupying another people in, in the way they're, they're reacting and demonizing based on racial, the fact that you have a, a, a people who are basically defending the, their homes and their rights, uh, and you're justifying, using illegitimate means or, or reasons, justifying the occupation and uh, basically uh, oppression of, of another people. So the similarities are, are definitely, like I said, glaring, and, and this is what the gist of Gideon's article is about. Just finally, I mean, talk a little bit about Olive Kids. Is it becoming more difficult for organisations such as yours to help Palestinians in the occupied territories? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess it's always been difficult. So um, it's it's never easy to do work in, in Palestine, and particularly when you're trying to help uh, people in Gaza, where due to the siege and the restrictions, it's always been like a, a really a, a huge challenge for us. But what we also are facing, particularly with the Australian government, really siding with Israel blindly, regardless of what any consideration of the human rights of Palestinians, especially with that decision of, considering Hamas a terrorist organization, will make a lot of our work <clears throat> more challenging because we need to obviously uh, watch for any even like uh, uh, people that are part of like, for example, like councils or uh, employees of medical or humanitarian organizations that are affiliated with, with the government or with, with the authority that comes under the banner of Hamas would be considered uh, us collaborating with terrorist organizations. So this is where the challenge is coming from. It's just going to add this added layer of vetting and verification and, and avoidance that we need to obviously take. Not that something that we don't do. We don't do that on a regular basis. However, this adds like a, a very complex layer on top that really is meaningless and it really does not serve or protect Australians from terror or, or anything else. So, yeah, our challenge is going to continue with this added complication. And also the arrest and incarceration of Muhammad al-Halibi. Absolutely. So the incarceration of al-Halibi, which has been like over well over five years now, uh, when uh, in fact here in Australia it was verified that there's no like you know uh, uh, wrongdoing or there's no evidence uh, of any uh, uh, misuse of funds for, for, like, you know, for the wrong uh, reasons or like to support terror or even support Hamas at all. In fact, Israeli government numbers or, or suggestions or allegations were mean, like, didn't even make sense. I mean, there was like, it's actually more than the full amounts of money that were ever sent in, in the past. So it's definitely not something that has been 
the allegations were never clarified or, or verified in the right way, and I think it's definitely something that makes it very difficult for people to uh, be able to do humanitarian work in, in Gaza. And quite deliberately. Uh, absolutely. Make it difficult. Make it difficult where you're making it difficult for people who are oppressed and who are probably having the greatest need for our help, sadly. If you'd like to give your details for Olive Kids. Yeah, Olive Kids, the website for Olive Kids is olivekids.org.au. Um, we also have a Facebook page, an Instagram page with also Olive Kids. And uh, there's the ability to donate directly through olivekids.org.au slash donate. And we appreciate everybody's support. Okay, thanks very much. And I've been speaking with Amin of us. And if you can help, olivekids.org.au. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio on digital and online 3CR Radical Radio. A system based on profits, inequality and oppression cannot deliver a society that works for ordinary people. Capitalism has to go. During this global pandemic, millions of lives have been sacrificed by the let it rip strategy, all for the sake of the capitalist economy. The far right is on the offensive, in Parliament and on the streets. And all the while, our planet continues to burn. Now, more than ever, we need revolution. We need socialism. This April, the Marxism 2022 conference will bring together revolutionaries and radicals from across the globe to address the pressing need to fight the right and rebuild the left. Talks, discussions, film screenings and interviews will cover the history of working-class struggle and burning questions for socialists today. Get your ticket to the biggest left-wing conference in Australia at marxismconference.org. We have a world to win. Marxism 2022 is a 3CR supporter. Brian Terrell, lifelong peace activist, living on a farm in Iowa. But on Friday the 18th of February, he and three others went to Kansas City a trial, and there was some doubt as to whether this interview would take place two days later, because of a slight possibility he would be in jail, but no. So my first question to him was, what was going on on Memorial Day, the last Sunday in May 2021? Well, there's a group in Kansas City, which is well, about 120 miles from, from where I live in Iowa, called PeaceWorks. And they do various good things. And um, in Kansas City, there is a factory that is uh, actually it's a huge, sprawling complex. They call the National Security Complex, the National Security Campus of all things. And it, it is where they do research, uh, development and production of the parts of nuclear weapons that are not actually nuclear. The, you know, the bombs and missiles and, and, you know, the, the navigation and, you know, all the other aspects of this. And this is a part of, and it's been expanding. I don't know how many thousands of people work there. And the United States has been for these last few years embarked in a, uh, really a reversal of the disarmament that began in the 1980s where the Russians, the United States and others were cutting back on their nuclear weapons. So any at all are, intolerable, but at least there was quite dramatic reduction. 
And now the United States is starting it up again, uh, saying that it's just um, renewing these, uh, modernizing words. The language that the U.S. government uses for this, is it's really kind of shocking. They, they, they call it life extension of nuclear weapons at a time when the life expectancy in the United States is going down for the first time since uh, before World War II and at a time when, of uh, pandemic and poverty. Uh, they were extending the lives of, of nuclear weapons and they use the word stockpile stewardship, which is stewardship is usually you know, applied to things like uh, national parks and infrastructure. It's things that you want to preserve for, for, fu- for future generations. You Stewardship is the careful, you know, maintaining and care of the things that we're responsible for. This is a very frightening move, especially with what's going on now, you know, with Russia and Ukraine. One of the things that they're doing, that they're making there is, I've talked to you before about the, the protests I've participated in in Holland and in Germany at the uh, NATO bases where they have U.S. nuclear weapons, uh, nuclear bombs, both in Germany and Holland, these these bombs are the, the have been the B six one. They're free fall bombs. You know, fifty kiloton. That's you know three times each bomb, three times the explosive power of the Hiroshima bomb. Uh, of course, Russia is concerned because the U.S. and these NATO countries practice constantly delivering these nuclear weapons. You know, from very very close to their borders. But what's happening? Perhaps even as early as the summer, those bombs that are in Europe now will be replaced by the new E-6-1-12. Military says are more precise and deployable, which means more likely to be used, easier to use. One of the features is that these have steerable tail fins, that they're not the, just freefall bombs. And you can uh, dial them up or down from 1 to 50 kilotons. Yeah, and they're... And they're 2019, the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff leaked a, uh, somebody leaked a, uh, report by them called Nuclear Operations, and it suggests, quote, using nuclear weapons could create conditions, decisive results, and restoration of strategic stability. Specifically, the use of a nuclear weapon will fundamentally change the scope of battle and create conditions that affect how commanders will prevail in conflict. Now, nobody's talked like that for many, many years, uh, not since Gorbachev talked some sense into Ronald Reagan. Has anybody of any that these weapons have been, it's a horrible doctrine of mutually assured destruction where we hold each country that has nuclear weapons, in effect, is holding the world hostage, saying, you mess with us and, and we can pull the plug on everything and everyone. But nobody has thought for a long time that, that they could win a nuclear war but with this, uh, these new weapons being made in Kansas City, the nuclear parts that are made in Tennessee and in New Mexico, the mutually assured destruction, which has been a terrible burden on the world and it needs to go, that was going to be replaced by something much, much worse and much more perilous. This is a very frightening, uh, frightening thing. So what happened on, on the 31st and in the United States, that's uh, a holiday, Memorial Day, thinking of the, of the veterans of of past wars who died, you know, often the, the custom here is to go to graveyards and decorate the graves of soldiers. But we're thinking about uh, both the people who have died. There's been a plant in Kansas City. This new one was built in the last decades, decade or so, but there was a 
previous one there since the end of World War II, where uh, thousands have died of workers here have died from cancer, cancers from the, the poisonous things that they've that they've worked with. And so remembering them and remembering the, you know, thinking about you know the future victims of nuclear wars and the people who died with with the mining and production uh, and testing of nuclear weapons. So every year there's a uh, a demonstration there and uh, a good crowd shows up and usually you know a n- number of people anywhere I, I think the n- the biggest of them like 40 or 50 but this year it was five of us you know had to walk onto the property of the of the campus and were arrested and uh, you know we had our trial on Friday. How did you go? The judge is somebody that, that we have some familiarity with, and uh, Artie Bland, and he is young for a judge, which tells you that I'm getting pretty old. <laughs> I see the judges look like kids to me now. African-American man and and uh, very thoughtful and not ordinarily in the box. And I think I was disappointed in how the, the, the testimony was limited because the law that's, that we, they say that we broke was that we entered onto or we, we knowingly entered onto or remained on real property for a non-lawful purpose. The, the, the law is very clearly written that, we, that, that, that it is a crime of intent, that intent really matters. And we're only guilty if we entered for reasons that we knew to be, to be illegal. I've been prepared, you know, and others to, to, to speak to the, um, fact that what's going on in, at this plant is patently illegal. It's, uh, uh, under, you know, many, many laws. All the laws of war say a weapon has to be proportional and, or any military activity has to be proportional and, and something that kills everyone can't be, but, but specifically it's nuclear proliferation, non-proliferation treaty that President Johnson signed, uh, that is the law of the United States now and that, that it, that signs it has to make good faith efforts at not only not proliferating, but of cutting back on their nuclear weapons. And so building more is, is a crime. And, uh, the United States has not signed it, but you know, the prohibition on nuclear weapons that, that, that went into effect, uh, that most of the countries in the world have signed on to, but none of the nuclear ones a year ago, last month. Also, the, the Iowa, Missouri has a law that says, oh, it's a right of claim, which means that you can do something, ordinarily be breaking the law if, you know, if it's in self-defense or in the defense of others. And, and we feel this is very clear. Also, the First Amendment of the United States says, the United States Convention says that uh, uh, protects, you know, there can be no law that prohibits citizens from peaceably assembling to address grievances to the government. And this is a government facility, and it is open on an ordinary day. The thousands of people work there. On an ordinary day, you can drive your car and park in the parking lot, and you can walk around and knock on doors, and, not, and no one's going to bother you unless they decide you're a nuisance. So even though our activity was, you know, protected by the Constitution, and the only reason why we were arrested is because they knew there was a demonstration. There's no gate, there's no guard, there's, you know, it's amazing that a place like this would be as open as it is, and we didn't 
climb over a fence or anything like this. This is the only reason why there were police there that, and, the, and that they were uh, guarding their perimeter was they knew that there was a demonstration. You know, we feel at least we had a, um, you know, that, that we believed that we were there for a lawful purpose and that, that that belief is reasonable and we should have been found not guilty. Now, the judge, he just said, what matters, were you there or not there? And our testimony was limited to that, um, which gave us no defense whatsoever. And we were found guilty. Everything that mattered was over. He gave us a very creative and very lenient sentence. He sentenced us to 180 days in jail, suspended. But he said, none of you are going to go to jail for a single day. And then put us on a year's probation. And the conditions of the probation would be that we would uh, stick around after the court was filed was formally over and engage in conversation with him about about these issues and that we pray for him. So it was a very friendly gathering. <laughs> and and did you do what he asked? Yeah, we stuck out, stuck around and talked and, 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 he, and he was very open to listening. But and I, you know, I, I am praying for him and I will pray for him. I, I think that's a very novel thing for a judge, a civil judge to ask, but, but it's, it's fair. But I, I think it, it's, you know, the sad thing is for me is that he wouldn't let that guide his decisions. You know, he was clearly sympathetic and all, but, but for some reason when the courts are, it seems to be pretty universal that there's, almost like a secret code of law that can't be mentioned, you know, that really makes a mockery of any idea of law or any idea that of any human institution. If it's illegal to protest nuclear weapons, and if nuclear weapons are legal, which is in effect what he ruled on, is that the, that we were our purpose there was unlawful, then uh, what does law mean? Oh, well, one, one thing that, that I think that sent a chill down my spine is the police officer who works for the federal government and for Honeywell, the contractor who was in charge of security that day explained, because I said Memorial Day is a federal holiday, but it was open for business. And he said the reason why the plant was open, although the workers were there because he said the work never ends. And that really really scared me because it's like, yeah, if we don't end this, remind me of what John Kennedy said about the, the nuclear arms race. He said, if we don't end it, it's going to end us. And if we don't end what's happening at that plant, it will end us. The end of that plant might be the end of any kind of organized human life on this planet. And it made me feel like, yeah, if your job doesn't end, then mine doesn't either. <laughs> 180 days and you're on probation, does that just mean for Kansas or is that for the whole of America? Well, it's, we're on probation for a year and in that year, I have the paper right here, we're, we're, we're required to obey every federal, state and local law and inform them if we change that address and, and such. But the reality is, and we have it on record, yeah, it says defendant is to obey all federal, state, local laws. Defendant notify court within 48 hours of change of address. 
who have no repeat conviction of the ordinance listed above, etc. He just orally, he said, I can't write it down, the part about praying for him. <laughs> but but he did say, so I think what it is, is he since he found us guilty, he had to do something. And he did say that, and it's on the record that he said, he, we're not going to go to jail for it. We're not going to go to jail for it for a day. Uh, so he technically, we can, for violating any kind of law in, in the United States, including city ordinances, that technically that 180 days is hanging over our heads. But he said, well, that's up to the judge's discretion. It's not automatic. So if we get arrested somewhere, we could be called in to his court, and he could give us 180 days up to that, but he is, or anything less. But, you know, he has already made it clear that he is not going to put us in jail, and I and I trust him on that. So I think this is his way of having it both ways. We have our slap on the wrist, uh, but he doesn't have doesn't have us hard being in jail on his conscience. This uh, probation will not be weighing on me as I make future decisions. Brian, I know you'd like to talk about the situation in Afghanistan and particularly what Biden has done in the recent weeks. It's really, really horrific. It's, there is about $7 billion in Afghan money in U.S. banks, and that money has been frozen. And the Afghan government and Afghan businesses and such that, yeah, this is just it's big, normal, big international business stuff. I think there's, there's money in some European banks, and that's frozen too. Anyway, the uh, Afghans government and businesses, you know, they can't pay wages. They can't um, buy food. And also at the end of this devastating war, the just the chaos of one government collapsing and another one taking its place. People need that money. And, of, and of course, the, the Taliban government is, is horrible, but it is the government there now. And it's not our money to decide. Usually when, when a country loses a war of aggression, more often they, they're the ones paying you know, reparations, turn things upside down. So one, one thing is the U.S. has been giving aid to Afghanistan about 800 million dollars, uh, which sounds like a lot of money, but the but the war in Afghanistan, they were saying $300 million a day on maintaining that war for 20 years. And also, the, the, the mistrust of the Taliban government is, is, is well-based, but in actuality, this is going to be strengthening their hand, uh, and it's not the rulers, in any case, time when there's sanctions like this, given it's, it's, it's the most... Um, you know, vulnerable people, and it's the working people, and it's children who are going to be, who are suffering from this. The United States, over the last 20 years, has also spent, and this is their own Inspector General of the U.S. government saying this, more money was spent in real dollars in Afghanistan, not for the war, but for the reconstruction, as they say, then we built all the cities of Western Europe in the, in the Marshall Plan after World War II. But I visited there seven times over a decade. You know, the last time I was there was 2019. Every time I went, the, the, the country was 
you know, the, the infrastructure is more degraded, the housing, um, the hospitals, the schools, everything, everything was exponentially worse with every visit and all this money being poured in, but it was all taken by mostly U.S. contractors and then Afghan oligarchs. So the United States trusted what even its uh, allies call a, uh, called a narco republic, you know, so corrupt for 20 years, and now they're not trusting the Taliban. But one of the most, I think, really evil things about this, uh, and unfortunately I think it might play out pretty well for President Biden politically, is he is going to release which is probably going to be distributed you know, by the United States government and probably about the same way that the billions of dollars you know, that rebuilt Afghanistan over the last 20 years will be spent. But the other half is going to be going to the victims of the 9-11 attack and their families, which, of course, there's nothing wrong with giving compensation to them. But there was... Although Osama bin Laden was living in Afghanistan, this was a plot that was that was dreamed up by a bunch of Saudis mostly in Hamburg, Germany. And no one in Afghanistan, as far as anyone knows, even knows this was happening. And I, I've talked to Afghans about what happened in 2001. They didn't know that the World Trade Center had been attacked the U.S. started bombing until after the the soldiers invaded and also the the median age in Afghanistan today is just a few months over 18 years so Afghanistan has been punished with a brutal brutal war for 20 years and most of the people in Afghanistan weren't born when that the crime of nine that happened in 9 11 2001 was committed were, were not even born yet, uh, but their whole life they've been they've been punished, and they will continue to be punished. Yes, it's, it's one of the, the horrible things going on in the world. Uh, uh, most U.S. citizens are oblivious to, or and I really hate to say you know, that, that, that many of them would support this if they knew about it, but it's it's mostly under under the radar. So the the uh, Afghanistan the it's mountainous. It's cold. The, the winters are brutal. And even in the best of times these last years, you know, whole days where there's no electricity, uh, the, the air cobble is some of the worst in the world. And part of it is, you know, people are burning, you know, burning plastic. There's a lot of BTUs in plastic. And people are, people who can't afford firewood or coal and, 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 those are very dirty fuels, but even those are those are hard to get in good time. So, burning garbage is how people survive. It's, a, it's in a mountain valley, and so the you know the inversions, the air currents, you know, keep in the winter time, keep all that smog inside. And, and even in previous winters, thousands of people die from each winter from respiratory diseases. The the, the other conditions there are just are just unspeakable. Uh, and of course, they have a horrible government, but you know, so do a lot of people. So we and children are dying, you know, because they have a horrible government, and that's you know, it's unspeakable. Have you been able to keep in touch with any of your friends there? Yes, yes, it's still with 
with social media, it's and I'm I've been in touch also with several people who've made it to the people I'm in touch with have made it into Germany. Four or five people that I know are now in Germany and one is in Canada and I think the for most of them their their status is still still very shaky. I do hear from people in Afghanistan too and it's 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 heartbreaking and I you know feel quite hopeless helpless and the the friends that I have who've gotten out you know of course there's a there's a survivor's guilt because everyone has there, there is no one who's gotten out of Afghanistan who's not left family behind the you know, the answer is not thinking about releasing the money and this thing about stopping this war that now you know Biden we don't have soldiers there but Biden says the war continues over the horizon that's how he this is a favorite term of us, about the drones and bombers, but the war isn't ending, and a war that doesn't have soldiers on the ground, and where all of the casualties are people of color and people far away, and none of our kids and no one we know. That kind of war is just much more intractable. They don't need charity, and we don't need, in the mean, in the short term, yes, we should be doing what we can, giving to organizations that are able to help. We should open our borders to the refugees and, and give them safe paths. To give. But, but on the other hand, what they really need is justice. You know, it's their money. They don't need other than foreign aid, which is given at pleasure of the donor. Let them have their own money and stop this war, stop this fighting and allow them to make peaceful relations with their neighbors, um, which is another thing the United States certainly doesn't want. Afghanistan at peace will be necessarily be at peace with Iran, will be at peace with China, will be at peace with Russia, and be um, trading and buying and selling from those countries because they're, they're their neighbors. And it's the big fear in the United States is that uh, is an Afghanistan that's going to turn toward these other countries which, of course, they will uh, and be more likely to do that if they're starving. And if, if somebody else is going to help them, you know, they'll, they'll take that help. It just seems to me with everything in the world, you know, with the situation in Afghanistan and Yemen and the, the nuclear standoff, this posturing with, with Russia, anybody in the mainstream media, anything that, that anyone from the U.S. State Department is admitting, this is an existential threat, and we don't have time for the slow movement of politics. And, you know, just as a matter of pragmatic realism, we have to make the kind of changes that would appear to be uh, utopian in another time. We just have to put down our weapons, and we have to start sharing our resources. There's, there's simply no other choice. And I don't know how that's going to happen. I, I have hope that it will. I'm not without hope, but I don't have any any optimism, really. I don't see how this is going to happen, but it, it, it just must. Lifelong peace activist Brian Terrell, who divides his time working for peace and working on a Catholic worker farm in Iowa.